we join in this morning. Um, this is technically our third week um, looking at the book of Ezra. And so this morning uh, we are going to be in chapter 2. So if you wonder how that works out, uh, we spent a week talking background of the book. We spent a week talking about why in the world should we study this Old Testament book that probably most of us are not very familiar with. Um, we also talked about um, what was the, the setting, what was happening at this time. And so uh, just real quickly, uh, just to catch everybody up to speed with where we're at this morning, um, the book of Ezra was written in a, in a period of time when the Israelites, uh, who are God's people, uh, was God's chosen people through Abraham. God had made a promise that they would be his people and that he was going to bless the world through them. And so um, we, we, we looked at how at this period in their life, they had been disobedient to God and God had promised that because of their disobedience, he was going to kick them out of the promised land, right? They, they had went to the promised land, they had been there, um, but then they started following after these other gods and so God removed them um, through Babylon, ultimately, uh, the world power of Babylon. And so now they are captives in Babylon, living as exiles, uh, and so when we pick up the story in Ezra, the Persians have come in and now conquered Babylon. So they're the ruling nation and empire at this time. And so now they are uh, under Persian rule. And God, through his power, through his sovereign plan, uh, after 70 years of them being there, is now going to return them back to Israel. And so uh, last week we talked a lot about how it's ultimately through God's control and power that now they're going to make this voyage back to uh, back to their homeland, uh, back to Israel. And so uh, that's kind of where we pick up this morning in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, I would encourage you to open up to Ezra chapter 2. As we're going to spend <clears throat> a good amount of our time there this morning. Now before we get right into Ezra chapter 2 though, uh, I want to share a quote with you guys uh, that I think is really helpful as we look at uh, this point in the book. Uh, And the quote is this, you can't really know where you were going until you know where you have been, right? And so for any of us uh, that have ever set out uh, to accomplish something, maybe we set out uh, at that period, once we get out from maybe our parents' house, um, and we've kind of tried to put our feet out into the water ourselves and try things out, we've realized that so much of knowing what we want to do is ahead of us is also knowing what lies behind us, where we came from, what are those things. For some of us, it's things we've had to overcome. For others, it's been really encouraging things. We've had a really good experience and has really set a good foundation for us. But either way, it's important that we understand where we have been if we want to know where we're going, if we want to have a clear picture of where we're going. <clears throat> and that's that's going to be where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning is really, again, looking back at where Israel has come from. Where are these exiles coming from? In, our, in chapter 2, just to give you like the little snapshot, Sparks Note version of chapter 2, it basically lets us know that they set out to return to Jerusalem, and then the majority of the chapter is just a list of names of people who went on this. And it gives them in classifications and groupings as far as what role they played on the team in the group as they went. But that's kind of that's kind of the summary of chapter 2. And a lot of times, 
I think when we read our Bibles and we come to passages like this one, where it may be, um, you know, where we get to a point where it's uh, a list of names or genealogies, a lot of times, let's be honest, what do we do a lot of times? We skip it, right? Or if you're listening to it, like I do a lot of times on your Bible app, the audio version, you can put it on like five times speed and it can just say all those names really fast because let's be honest, you don't know them anyway. Um, However, I want to just, I want to push on us a little bit this morning as uh, we get into this chapter and just challenge us a little bit. Those names are there for a reason. And so you think about this, the authors that wrote the Bible, they took a great lengths to record the things that they wrote. And they wrote those so that you and I would know what they are, right? And so there's a purpose in each one of those. And so we're going to get a a snapshot. Now, if we were to try to go through, uh, I thought about asking one of the people on our core team this morning to to do the the public reading of chapter 2 for us. But I decided that I wouldn't be quite that mean to them because some of the names in here are probably as hard to get right as as Russin is. Um, And so there's a whole list of names, but there's stories that are attached to all of these. Um, and so we want. I want to set the pace to make sure that we understand exactly who are these people that are about to go and do this this incredible mission that God has called them to go on. Okay. And so, what are we going to be talking about today? Is the idea of exile. Okay. Exile. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to be an exile. And um, <clears throat> for a lot of us, that's probably a very foreign term as we're gonna as we're gonna talk about. Most of us probably don't feel like exiles. Um, captives, maybe. This time of year is tax season's coming up, right? Some of us may feel like we're captives to our own taxes. Or maybe if you're still you know, under, uh, in your parents' house, maybe you feel sometimes like their rules are maybe captivating um, or holding you captive. But we don't really understand this idea of exile because it's not our current context, um, at least in the way that we think about it. However, I believe that as we get into... Uh, the word this morning as we get into chapter 2 of Ezra, we're going to see that there's so many parallels between what the exiles in our, in our current story we're going through and, and the things that we go through in our lives as well. So we said this, we said uh, for exile is this, uh, and exiles feel like this is our home, okay? So as exiles, we feel like this place that we live is our home, but this is not really our home. Okay, and, and that may be like, well, aren't you just saying the same thing? No, right? There's the sense in which all of us are exiles. There's those things in life that we experience and we go through, and we say, this just doesn't feel right. Like, it shouldn't be this way. Um, it, it, it doesn't feel like home. It doesn't feel like the way it should. It, it, I look around, and there's a lot of familiar things. There's a lot of comfortable things. There's things that I love and I enjoy, but it's not completely where I was meant to be. Uh, created to be, and that's that's the exiles. The exiles um, in in our in our passage, they have been brought out of uh, their home, which is Jerusalem, and now they're exiled, living in Babylon. And there's a lot, as we're going to discover, there's a lot of really cool things that they get. That I mean, this is a booming um, empire that they get to be a part of, and they start to incorporate their lives in there. But at the end of the day, they realize that this is ultimately not their home. And so to kind of set the, to set the tone for that, it's important that we understand how they got here, how they got here. And I know we talked a little bit about this in week one, um, but essentially there were three different waves of exiles. There were three different times in Israel's story that they were taken from 
Jerusalem and now brought over to now what is going to be Babylon. And so the first of those is the Assyrian exile. Um, and this was the, the northern kingdom, and we're not going to get too much into to all of that. Just, just know that uh, we're probably all familiar with King David, right? King David, nod your head, heard of that guy before, right? Um, wrote a lot of the Psalms, um, was, was kind of the, one of the, the elite best kings that Israel had. And so under King David, it was one united kingdom uh, of the tw- 12 tribes, and it was a very good time for them. And even under his son Solomon, they were continued to be very prosperous, and they were one kingdom. But after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And the northern kingdom, um, who, who ended up uh, really being, uh, really going further away from God, being more disobedient to what God said, they, they were chasing more after uh, the, the religions and the idols of the other nations, uh, was the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, uh, even though they weren't by any means perfect, tended to keep more to God and to being holy and faithful to God, and that was the southern kingdom. And so, um, as God had, had promised, the northern kingdom was first exiled by the Assyrians. And a lot of times I think what's, what's hard for us to draw the gap is that we sometimes think, oh, well, this exile thing probably wasn't too bad. I mean, it was just like they had to go live somewhere else. It would be like if somebody forced you to go live in another state, right? Like, it probably may not be your preference. Or I know a lot of kids that I knew in school, a lot of times their parents would get jobs somewhere else, and so then they would have to move to a new town. And that was kind of hard for them because they, they lost their friends. But overall, it was, you know, it wasn't that big. That wasn't that bad. They still were pretty familiar with the place they were moving, most of the things they had in common. However, what we start to see in a lot of these exiles is this was not the case. Um, and, and, and in particular, in the uh, Assyrian exile, uh, they were forced out of their land. So as Assyria comes in and conquers their, the northern kingdom, they drag them off. Um, and we even have some artwork from that period that kind of shows some of what that looks like. And so this is a picture. And, and what I want you to, to notice is that the guys that are standing right there, what they would do is they would put hooks through their lips and they would drag them off into Assyria. They would strip their clothes and put hooks through their lips and march them off as a sign of the victory of Assyria. And so this wasn't like a great thing for them. Uh, this, this idea of being into exile was not something that uh, the Israelites looked at and said, hey, this is, this is a fun thing. Um, and so first we see in 722, the northern kingdom gets exiled. And then in about 598, we see that there's the first uh, exile from the Babylonians. And this is the, the southern kingdom. And so they come in um, in 598 and they, and they conquer Jerusalem and they kind of chart off the best of the best. This is where we get the book of Daniel from. This is that time period. Uh, if you're familiar with Daniel and the lion's den, uh, if you're familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown into the furnace. This is that period of time where they get charted off and carried back to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then what Nebuchadnezzar does is he sets up another king um, in the place, and this was kind of like a puppet king that he sets up. Um, he was supposed to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, but yet he gets some power to kind of rule there. However, after a few years, this guy thinks, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar's not here. He's not going to know. And stops, stops sending money back to Nebuchadnezzar. He stops uh, being loyal. And so Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm not going to have any of this. And so then he brings his whole army. And that's when in, in 586, we get the complete destruction of Jerusalem. This is when the temple is destroyed. This is when the walls are are torn down and all and the majority of the Israelites now are charted off to Babylon uh, to live in captivity. And so 
that's kind of the the idea uh, of where they've come from. They've they've been charted off, and so now for seventy years they've been living in this place that's not home. They've been living under another kingdom. They've been living under another king who has been telling them what they need to do and, and setting up places for them to work and all that sort of stuff. And then also it's important to understand that once they get back to Jerusalem, right? so they are about to set off to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Once they get back to Jerusalem, it's not going to be the home that they left. It's not going to be the home that they thought it was going to be. See, they get back and they realize that one, the city is in, 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 it's been decimated. It's been destroyed. And so they're going to have to rebuild everything. It's, it's not like they're walking into a great situation. But then very quickly, they're also reminded that even though they may be back home, they're still under the rule of the Persians. Um, as we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that some opposition starts to come in. Um, and, and at one point in the story, the Persians are going to say, you got to stop building this thing. you got to stop. The, and, and gives them a cease and desist order. As, and it's just a reminder that even though it may look like home for them, it's not home. Um, even though it, they're returning back to Jerusalem, it's still not home. And I would say that for us, as we look at the world we live in, uh, for those of us that have pledged allegiance to Jesus, that we look around and we say, you know what, there's some great things in this world. There are some really, really great things in this world. Um, and they're things that we love and that we care and we spend a lot of time um, pouring into. But we realize that ultimately this is not the end. This is not the goal. This is not the place that we're hoping um, to be one day. And, and the Bible even tells us that this world is ruled by a different prince. It calls him the prince of this world. And so uh, we can even be reminded of that. So with that kind of in your minds, I want you to take about 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, and I want you to get in a couple of groups, just the people that are sitting right beside you. And I want you to, to discuss this question uh, in your groups. Describe in three words... Uh, the word, what home means to you. In three words or less, describe home with the people sitting closest to you. So home, right? Home. And, and I think what we, what we miss a lot of times when we come to the Bible is we realize that, um, or we miss the fact that the authors of the Bible were writing this with an intention and with a purpose. Um, and if we're careful, and if we look, we see that they kind of give us similar messages throughout the Bible. We get common, and, and, and the word that we describe that by is themes. We get themes that happen throughout the Bible. Um, and these are, these are big picture um, stories or ideas that are really found throughout the Bible. Um, and this idea of exile is one of those themes. And so this, this idea of trying to be in a place that feels like home but not our home is something that we see... <clears throat> throughout the pages of Scripture. Um, and the first place that it shows up is in the very beginning, page 3 of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Um, and we're probably familiar with the story of um, Adam and Eve and how they decided not to follow God, not, not fully follow after God. And so what happens? What's the result of that? Well, in, in verse 22 it says that the Lord uh, came to them and said that... Um, he said that man shall, uh, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now at least he reach out his hand and take also of the tree to eat from the, the tree of life and eat from it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God said to him, sent him out of the garden, out of Eden, 
to work the ground for which he was taken. Verse 24 says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned in every direction and every way uh, to guard the tree of life. So, so what's happening here? God is, God is sending him out. He is exiling man because man decided to make that choice to rebel against God. God is exiling him from this perfect garden paradise that he created, this, this place that God created for man and God to live together in the same space, right? That's what the, the garden was. It was a, it was a place that, that God's space and man's space could be together. And God and man could exist together. And they, the Bible even says that, that God would walk with man uh, in the evenings. And so uh, in, this, in this beautiful space that was created to be home, because man chose uh, to rebel against God and to walk again, away from that relationship with God, God exiled him away from this place. And so that's the very first picture that we see of this. Uh, now the next few I'm going to walk through really quickly. Uh, I would encourage you maybe to write these down. I have some verse references that you can look up later if you want to go a little bit deeper on this. Um, but this theme is kind of picked up throughout the Bible. And so uh, we have next we have Abraham in Genesis 12. If you guys are familiar, um, God called Abraham to leave his home, his homeland, his country, and go to another place that God had called him to. Uh, and this idea of being uh, away from home. Um, we see it in the story of Jacob. Um, there's a season when Jacob is, is exiled or leaves his homeland because of fear of Esau, um, because he stole his birthright and he was, a, he was afraid uh, because he also stole his blessing. And so he, he leaves and goes to live with his, uh, with his uncle Laban for a season. And so he's away from home. And then there's this whole journey of him coming back. Uh, there's Joseph. Um, you guys remember that story? Joseph was one of Jacob's sons, uh, and he's the one that got sold into slavery and ultimately ended up in Egypt, right? And God ended up uh, using this uh, exile moment, him being away from his home, to end up saving his entire family because a famine was going to come into the land. You guys familiar with that whole storyline, hopefully? Um, and so the famine came in, and, and we see in, in uh, the end of Genesis, in through the, the first half of Exodus, that God's people, the people that God had made a promise to, um, the, the Israelites, they are all now living as exiles in Egypt in a place that's not their home. Um, and then as we move to the New Testament, uh, we get a picture of this in the early church. In Acts chapter 8, we see that the church uh, has to flee out of Jerusalem uh, because of persecution that's coming. Um, and so through this persecution, they start to spread out to different places, and they're exiled away from their homeland. Um, and, and we even see this with the churches. We even see this with, um, with some of the writing that will come uh, from some of the, the apostles and the early church leaders as they write to them. They write to them in such a way as calling them sojourners and exiles and those that are they're not in their homeland. Um, also in the book of Revelation chapter 21, we get a picture of a new heaven and a new earth, which is, which is the idea of being returned back to this garden-like place that God had created for us. And so this is, this is literally recorded throughout Scripture. Um, and, and then in some of, the, some of the letters, like in Peter's writing, um, check out some of the words that he uses as he writes. Um, so this is in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. He says to those who are elect exiles... Um, from all of these different places. And so as he's writing to this church, he's also got in, in his mind that these people are not living in their home, but they are exiles, not just because of persecution, but also um, this whole mindset that the place that we're living is not our home. 
in uh, Second Peter, or First Peter two eleven, he says, uh, "I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right, to abstain from these things." This idea that uh, as people who are not to embrace everything that we live that's in this world, uh, because we are just passing through. This place is not our ultimate landing place. And then in First uh, Peter chapter five, this this one I thought was kind of neat. Um, in 12 through 14, he says, uh, he's talking about one of the ladies there, and he says that uh, she who is at Babylon, and so this idea of Babylon, um, what we start to see is that Babylon takes on um, the meaning throughout Scripture and a lot of the biblical writers. Babylon becomes that place of exile. And so to say, to write to the lady who was in, in, in Babylon would be just the same way as saying to those that are not in their home. Babylon kind of takes on that meaning of that exile place. Because remember from our story today, or our passage today, that they Babylon was the place that they were exiled to. Um, and most importantly, and that's why I wanted to save it for the end, Jesus talks about in this way too. Uh, Jesus talks with this exile kind of mindset um, as well. In uh, John chapter 15, he says... Uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right? There's this idea that we're not the same as people whose whole life and minds are just focused on uh, what's here, um, on what surrounds us. But we're called to be different than that. Um, in John 18, Jesus says, answered them, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. Um, and he goes on to say, if it was of this world, uh, my servants would have been fighting uh, that I might not be, not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Again, um, that was one of the things throughout the story of Jesus, throughout the gospel, that kept blowing people's minds was they were expecting him to come as this military leader, right? But he says that, that my kingdom and my world, my world is, is not of this world. Um, and then finally in John chapter 17... <coughs> He says, um, he says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that you may be filled with, uh, you, may, uh, you may have my joy filled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated me because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he's speaking there about his disciples, those that would follow him, and he says, look, they're not to be of this world. They're not to live as this is their ultimate landing destination because that's not where I'm from. And so if, if the one that we're following is not from this world, then we shouldn't be of this world. And um, I, really, I really tried hard this week to try to think of some sort of visual illustration that would bring this all home for, for us today as far as what it means to be an exile, what it looks like. Because I think in our culture that we live in, it's such a foreign concept to live somewhere. Um, most of us that woke up this morning did not ask the question, is this place, is Franklin County, is Rocky Mountain, is this really my home? Right? For most of us, we pretty much assume that, oh yeah, this is, you know, I get up and this is home and I just kind of do my thing. Um, and it's only when we think back and remind ourselves that we, we come to the realization that this is not our ultimate home. Uh, but I was trying to think of an illustration. I don't know if this one works or not. It's the only one that could really come in my mind. So we'll see how it plays out. Um, how many of you guys, all right, by a show of hands, don't yell it out, by a show of hands, if you know what TV show this is, just raise your hand. I just want to see in the room any idea of the TV show. This is, I, I'm not going to mention anything, but... It's really funny those that are raising their hands and those that aren't. 
right, so if you think you know what it is, what show is it? Saved by the Bell. Saved by the Bell. Right? Um, this was a, this was, this show is a big part of my uh, history growing up. This is a big part of my culture growing up. This defined the best of the early 90s right here was this show, Saved by the Bell. And essentially, the show was about a group of high schoolers, and they <clears throat> had a group, and it was just kind of the adventures and all the crazy things that they got into uh, kind of in the life of being a high schooler. Now, one of the unique things, I think one of the things that made the show so popular was that this particular group of friends um, kind of represented all these different categories of people within this high school, Bayside High School, um, which was set in California. Um, <coughs> each person in the group kind of represented uh, other microcosms of groups within that high school environment, right? So uh, I'm going to test your knowledge a little bit for those that know what this is um, and see if you remember who some of these people are, all right? So the blonde-haired guy with a really nice smile, what's his name? Zach. Zach. Okay, and what, what would you say? Zach Morris, okay. Um, kudos to Ashley. She might have the poster hanging somewhere. I'm not and what group did Zach represent? The Preppies. Somebody said it. It's too loud. The Preppies, right? That was kind of his nickname. They were the, they were the popular. He kind of represented that popular. He was always really good with the ladies, like that kind of segment of the high school, the really popular people. All right? And so then equally paired with him um, was, who's this guy? Slater. Slater, A.C. Slater, okay? And so if if you were like me and you grew up at this time and you watched the show, you, you picked a category. You were either like Zach or you were like A.C., right? You either wanted to be the really popular um, guy um, with the blonde hair or whatever, or you wanted to be, what group did he represent? Jocks. Jocks, the athletes, right? He was a wrestler, right? Um, and so I was always wanted to be like A.C. Slater because, I mean, he was... He was always just the cool, I felt like he was the coolest guy on the show. <coughs> um, okay, uh, who is this? Anybody remember? Screech, okay. I didn't realize we were taking this one up time. We'll go really quickly. And what group did he represent? Nerds. Kind of the nerdy group, kind of the, always kind of doing the crazy, like, goofy stuff, right? Um, and then kind of his counterpart was, who is this? Jesse. Jesse, right? And what did she represent? Okay, the feminist. Okay, she was definitely representing that. But she was also really smart, right? She was also really intellectual, but she was also kind of popular, so she was kind of like that popular, smart crowd. Um, who was this? Kelly. Kelly, all right. And Kelly was the the cheerleader, okay? So she was, uh, who was this? Lisa. Lisa. Lisa, man, you guys are on it today. <laughs> Franklin County, you know some Saved by the Bell history. I hope you know your Bible as well. Um, and so what group did she represent? Anybody know? Fashionista kind of deal. Okay. He was not in the group, but who was this? Mr. Belding. Belding had nothing to do with that. He was the principal. All right. Bonus points if anybody knows who that is. Max. Wow. <laughs> we need to have a Saved by the Bell trivia night. All right. Here's one of the things that becomes apparent, though, as you look at culture, maybe in high school, and maybe this was how it was for you. Um, but I heard this week, um, Isaac Nagel, he's the area director for uh, Franklin County Young Life. Uh, and he also heads up the, um, the yearbook committee at the high school. And one of the things he was telling me was <coughs> they've really tried to work hard over the last couple of years to get pictures in the yearbook that represent each person. Because what was happening is he said they had a lot of students that were coming to them and said, you know what, I look at the pictures in the yearbook, 
But that doesn't represent my experience of what it was like to be a student at Franklin County High School. And if you're anything like, like I was when I was in high school, I remember that as you looked at some of the big things that happened around the high school, that didn't represent you. I went to that same school. I ate at that cafeteria. I, I learned under those teachers. But the experiences of some was not the same as others. And I, and I think that's a, this is a very, very limited illustration that hopefully that we can start to understand. But I think that's a little bit of the picture I'm trying to get across to as being an exile, is being in a culture. You're a part of a culture somewhere, but it's not home. It's not your experience. It's not the place that ultimately you're living for. And so that's kind of the picture. Okay? So uh, 30 seconds. Discuss this one question. What is one aspect of the world that we live in that does not feel like home? Okay, what is something that you... And so this all be, builds up to the question of, okay, so maybe, yes, I do understand now somewhat of the exile. Maybe I, I can even recognize that my place in this, my role in this, is to realize that this place isn't home, um, but yet i got to live here. So the question everybody's asking is, so what, right? Can we all say that? So what? Oh, that was... Like really, all right. Let's get back to the to the Saved by the Bell slide. So what? So what? Right? Like that's that's the point we want to get to this morning is understanding like what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to be exiles? Um, we we can say all day, oh yeah, I'm an exile, but but what does that matter? Why is that important in my everyday experiences? I walk through. I was going to say through the streets of Rocky Mount. If you walk through the streets of Rocky Mount, you'll probably get hit um, because we don't have a whole lot of sidewalks. But as you as you go to the places you go in life, as you experience the things you do with your family and other relationships, what does that matter, right? What does it matter when our culture then starts to weigh in and press down on us and tell us that we should accept certain things and not accept other things or believe certain things and not believe other things? What does that mean, right? And so what I want us to do is I want us to, to, to look at and to start to think about what is the mindset of an exile. What should our mindset be as someone who realizes that um, we are here on this planet in this time for a purpose and for a reason? So how should we look at the world we live in? And it should look like this. Exiles submit when they can and take a stand when they can't. Um, and I think that is, um, and we're going to see, that's a, there's a biblical picture we have uh, for what it looks like to live in this sort of dichotomy, right? We're always walking the balance of when can, when should I submit to what the world and culture and even the, our government that's over us um, when it tells us certain things to do and people tell us certain things? When should I submit to that, realizing that they are in authority over me and I'm ultimately in exile, this is not my home? But at what point do I say, you know what, I can no longer submit to that though. i got to take a stand for that. Um, and so we're going to look at those two aspects. First, the idea of the things that we should submit to, okay? And, and Jeremiah 29 has become a really important passage. Um, it was important to the Israelites who were in exile. It's also, I think, a very important passage for us to understand. Because Jeremiah is writing a letter to the, writing a words to those that are going to be exiled, and he's giving them instructions of when exile comes, when you're living in Babylon, when you're in this place that's not like that's not your home, how should you navigate life? How should you walk through life living in this place that's not your home? Right? And we're going to pick up um, there's kind of three big things that he mentions here. And so um, 
If you get your Bible, Jeremiah chapter uh, 29, starting in verse 4. Um, somebody like to read this for us? I know it's kind of filling the spot. Somebody want to read that out loud for us? You got it, Mom? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. All right. So is that what you guys were expecting Jeremiah to write? If you hadn't read this before, was that what you were expecting? I mean, honestly, if, if, you, if you just kind of think about it, I think we were expecting him to say, have nothing to do with this awful pagan culture, and, and don't embrace it, you know, kind of pull back away by yourselves and don't have anything to do with it. But that's not what he says. In fact, he encourages them that while they are in Babylon, while they are exiled to do these things. He says build houses, right? He's encouraging them to live their life. Don't just set up temporary dwellings, but actually build yourself a house. Plant gardens, right? Any of you guys, I know we have, I have some family in here today, and we come from a long family line of gardeners. And one thing you know about a garden is that it doesn't happen. The produce doesn't happen overnight. It's a season. As soon as you finish planting or, or, or bringing in the crops from the previous season, you have to start to prepare the land to get ready for the next season. It's a long process. And so it's not like he was telling them to do things that were needed to be done quickly. Um, but you're going to live there. Um, and I think that same encouragement for us, like, it's okay to live in this culture. It's okay to build houses and to be settled and, and kind of build ourselves into the infrastructure of our communities to be a part of the community and to care for the community, get to know your neighbors. Uh, we shouldn't be like those people that just kind of seclude to ourselves and don't talk to anybody else outside of our circles. Be a part of this community. Multiply, right? He wanted to continue the promise, right? The promise was that he was going to make a great nation out of these people. And so if they stopped multiplying and they all died off, that wasn't going to accomplish the purpose. So, so be reminded, God still has us on a purpose. Um, just because we're not living in a place that feels like home to us doesn't mean we just kind of sit around and don't do anything. If anything, it should encourage us to live more on mission. As we see the brokenness of the lives of people around us and the hurt in the world around us, that should push us further to wanting to engage those uh, that don't have the hope of Jesus in their lives. And then finally he says, and this, I think this is probably the one that was the biggest shock to me, but he says, seek the welfare of the city, right? Do what's good for the city, right? Invest, pour into, love, care about the city. Be a part and add to the city. And that's our call. As we, most of us live in Franklin County, as believers in Jesus, as exiles living here, realizing this isn't our, our permanent home, we should still do things for the well-being and the good of the city, right? Like, in a real practical term, I mean, if you see trash sitting there, you shouldn't be like, hey, man, I'm an exile. I'm going to be out of here at some point. Like, that's the world's trash. I'm not going to mess. Like, do what's good for the city, right? Be a part of the city. It's okay to be a part of city council and things that are, are working to make this world a better place. Uh, realizing that it's got limited um, possibility there, but yet we be, we're a part of that for the well-being of the city. 
But Jeremiah is not the only place that talks about this idea of submitting um, to the world that we live in. Paul talks about this. Uh, look what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, he says, first of all, then I urge you that, uh, urge that supplication, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Right? To realize that we should be praying for those in positions of authority in this world over us. Right? It's okay to be praying for our president. It's okay to be praying for our congresspeople. It's okay to be praying for our teachers and people that are in our public school systems and our police officers and those things. Right? We don't need to so draw ourselves away that we don't even pray for them or care for them. Um, Peter, in his writings in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governments as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and... What does he get under there? Honor the emperor, right? There's this idea that we can still... As people, as citizens of of heaven, as those that are following Jesus, can still honor those that God has put in authority over us. (coughs) So we submit. We submit when we can. And Jesus, Jesus himself talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Probably his most famous teaching um, in in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. Um, he talks about things like the Beatitudes, right? And what, what our attitude should be when people do us wrong and how we should be humble and, and, and meek and mild and, and not be over top of people. He talks about how we shouldn't retaliate against those that do wrong to us, that we should love our enemies, um, that we should be salt and light in this world, right? That we need to be distinct, but at the same time, we, if, if we're going to be an impact, we need to be in this world. There's an idea of that, right? You can't be light in a place that's all light. You need to be in the darkness for the light to really shine. And so I think for the reminder of us, I think the real practical part for this looks like we need to realize that as we live in this place, in this world, um, that doesn't mean that we, at every moment, need to be in opposition to everything that's happening. I think we can submit uh, our lives as exiles to a lot of things in this world. However, we all know and we all realize that there are also those moments, right? There's moments in life where culture or government or people come to a point where you've got to take a stand, right? There's got to be a line that's drawn. And that's, that's probably not a really popular phrase in our culture today to draw a line, right? Um, but there comes a moment where you've got to take a stand, right? Where you've got to stand for something. Um, as, the, as the country song went, right? If, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, um, right, there's got to be that moment where you stand for something, and and hopefully this is a good illustration. If I can get the the tape off, perfect. All right, let's get that. We should put that on here. That's pretty straight. All right, and so I think practically we all have to get to that point where we realize what is our line. Right? What is, what is that line that we realize that, you know what, all the way up until this point, I can submit. Like, I can live, I can be humble, I can submit to these things. 
But when there's overreach, when something steps beyond that line, I can no longer, I can no longer submit to that. I've got to stand up because ultimately my allegiance to Jesus is higher than uh, to the world, right? And so what is that line? And I would submit to you this morning that that line for all of us should be things that steal our worship from God. Things that steal our worship from God is that line that we should take a stand on. Um, and it was really hard to think of, of one category, right, of, of what it was. Um, but I think, we, you know, we can, we can endure a lot of things. Um, I can hear a lot of things. But there's that line, and I think that that line has to be for us, those things that are going to steal away. And that's the picture we see throughout Scripture. Whenever God's people would ultimately um, end up going away from God, it was always when it was things that was, had stole the worship that was intended for God and given it to something that was less than God. Um, and our culture calls us to do that from time so from time to time. And so, um, so we need to, to look at our lives and ask, what is that line? Uh, to, to, to create that line in our life. And fortunate for us, we get some beautiful examples in Scripture of lines that were drawn, of this line that was drawn. One of those great examples we have is from the life of Daniel. Daniel. I heard one commentator called Daniel the Wisdom Warrior, and I thought, man, that is cool. Isn't that a cool name? Like, if somebody called me a wisdom warrior, I'd be like, dude, that's awesome. Like, please call me that. No, seriously, somebody please call me that. Nobody? Okay. Um, what a cool name, right? And what they mean by calling him the wisdom warrior is that when you read through the account in the life of Daniel, you don't just read it and be like, dude, this dude was a vicious warrior, man. He just, he just slayed people left and right. But what Daniel did was he would allow his wisdom that came from God to, to do the fighting for him. And so if you go back and you read the account of the things that Daniel did, holy smokes, man, this dude was a beast. Like, honestly, like he was standing up to kings and rulers and all of this because of the wisdom that God gave him to know, what is that line, right? Is this something that's going to steal the worship of God? Or is this something that I can submit to? Um, and so I would encourage all of us that we be wisdom warriors. Well, look at a few of these of these moments. Um, so moments that he submitted, right? Um, there were there were times when they would eat the king's food uh, that the king had provided from or from Babylon. The food that came from Babylon. There were times they even took on Babylonian names. And in chapter one, there you see that uh, Daniel and his friends they get these Babylonian names. And you know what? They're like, you know what? That does not steal my worship from God. I still know who I am. I'm still confident in that. And so call me Belteshazzar or whatever it is that you may want to call me. Right? I'm okay with that. Because that's ultimately not going to steal worship from God. They were educated um, by the king. They were educated in Babylon. And they took on Babylonian jobs. In fact, we see that um, one of the roles that Daniel took on was he was an advisor to the king. And so he would actually help the king make decisions that was for the benefit of Babylon. And he was okay with that. And he was okay with seeing Babylon flourish in that way. But there's some moments when he decided that he was going to subvert or that he was going to stand. He was going to say, you know what, that's overreach. That is, that is stealing worship from God. One of those was when he refused to eat the king's food knowing that it had been sacrificed and that it wasn't going to be honoring to God. That was one of his moments that he took a stand. Um, there in chapter 3, there was that moment where his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They, they were told that they had to bow down and worship this golden statue. And they said, oh no. Like, we'll submit in every way that we can. And it wasn't that they were out there with protest signs saying, down with the statue. 
But they were like, I cannot submit to that in all consciousness. And so they didn't. And then we see in chapter 6 how Daniel, they made the rule that Daniel, uh, that everyone would have to pray to the king. And again, Daniel said, you know what, that is a, this is, this is worship only to God. And I'm not going to cross that line. I'm not going to step over here. And so he took his stand, right? And that was where we get the story of Daniel in the lion's den and the pit with the lions. And God rescued him in these incredible ways. And so be encouraged by Daniel. He is, he is, the, he is the wisdom warrior um, that sets a beautiful example for us. But we all know that this place, this thing has to end around Jesus, right? He is their ultimate wisdom warrior. He's our ultimate example of how we should live our lives. And so look what he says, um, and this, the, the reference is on, <coughs> excuse me, on the next slide, but it's uh, Matthew chapter 10, um, starting in verse 16. He says, uh, go back to the, the yeah, thanks. Um, he says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm not a farmer, but that don't sound like a good thing, right? But isn't that true? Do you ever feel like that sometimes? Like, like if you're a follower of Jesus and, and you get in a culture, there's moments that you feel like, man, I'm just in a pack of wolves, man. I'm running for my life. I'm just trying to, to not be a lamb chop, not trying to be a snack for somebody. But he says, I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves. So, and I love the, the phrase that he uses here. This is a, this is a passage that I've learned, loved for so many years. Um, and, and hopefully this wisdom will, something that you can hold on today. He said, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I love that picture, right? Because think about the serpent, right? How is the serpent always described in the Bible? It's cunning and wise. The Bible said that he was, he was, he was more wise than any of the other creatures, right? Even, even like when you see snakes, there's this idea that, I don't know, when I see a snake, we went to this reptile thing the other day. Snakes just, they really creep me out because I feel like they got this master plan, right? Like they want to crawl all over my shoulders and then wrap around my throat so I die. Like that's their ultimate plan is to take me out. Um, just like cats sometimes. Um, but, but be wise, right? In, in, in our dealings and the things that we do, we need to allow wisdom to go out in front of us. But at the same time, be innocent as doves, right? That we need to, to be innocent in our approach or harmless, inoffensive in our approach. And he goes on to say, But beware, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. Think about this. If you're going to bear witness for Jesus, and it's because you will not give your worship to somebody else, that's a reason to bear witness to Jesus, right? That's a reason to, to lift high the name of Jesus and saying, I'm not going to stand for that. But some of the petty stuff that we, that we say is in the name of Jesus, some of our personal preferences that we can't get over, that doesn't give a testimony. That doesn't honor Jesus to the world around us. Right? But we will, he says. And so when you're delivered over to them, do not be anxious what you're going to say or, what you're, or how you're going to say it. For, for, uh, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I'm going to the next slide. Said, uh, brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have given, you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Listen to this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And, and I wanted to put that last part in there because I want us to, to be reminded that, you know what? 
Think about the experience of Jesus, right? How did his story on earth end? Hanging on a cross, persecuted, being made fun of, being hated, right? And if we're going to pick up the cross of Jesus and carry that around this world, we really shouldn't expect our, our situation to be a whole lot different than that, right? I think it's just a beautiful reminder. But I think that, that encouragement for us to live as wise as serpents and to be wise in our dealings but yet gentle in our approach with people is extremely Extremely important. And so as we as we start to drive this home um, today, as we start to drive this home over the next few minutes, I want you to start asking yourself some questions in your mind. I want you to start thinking about this. I think sometimes in church we we wait to save all of the application to the last minute, um, and it doesn't give us a lot of time to start thinking about these things. And so here's a few questions I just want us to be thinking about uh, as we as we finish up. One. Where in life am I being called to live under submission? What are those things in life that, you know what, it's okay if I live in such a way that I live under the rules that are not my own and things that are not uh, the way that I would prefer them to be. Because you know what, I'm in exile. This isn't home. Secondly, start to think about what are those places that I need to make a stand, right? What are those areas in my life that, you know what, I just can no longer stand to sit there and to... uh, to submit to those things. What does wisdom say in those moments for that decision? Next question to to be thinking about is, what can I think about or do that doesn't come in conflict with my worship of God? Right? It may not always be action. There might be things that we put into our mind that is stealing the worship away from God. There are things that we can look at. There are things that we can think about in our minds without ever doing or going anywhere. But it steals the worship from God because we've now put something else, something else, an idol, something else up in our minds um, in the place of God. And one more question just to be thinking about um, is how much of my hope is tied up in this world? How much of my hope is tied up in this world? Because... And this is really hard. Because I think for a, for a lot of times, um, things that happen in this world, they do affect us. And they are hard. And so when we go through challenging things and hard things in this world, is that where all of our hope rests? Or do we realize that as exiles, we must live differently? Okay? So I know that was a whole lot. I want to give you a nice long 30-second conversation break to kind of read that out for a second. Uh, and I want you guys to... Talk about this question. What is one rule that if it was put into law, you would not be able to follow? Okay, what is one rule that, or one law, what is one area in life, what is something that you would not be able or be willing to submit to if it became So, So kind of wrapping, wrapping, our, wrapping this around today, um, as, we think about, as we think about exiles and how we live, uh, how we submit and we stand, um, I think there's two, two important aspects that can really help us out as we do that, right? Because that can be hard, right? Like, let's be honest. Anybody who says figuring out what it's like to walk that balance of standing and submitting, like, if anybody says that's easy, it's really not. And and I think that our passage today uh, in um, in Ezra really does have some important important value for us. Um, so in so in chapter. Uh, so in chapter 2, verse 1, right, 
the beginning part of that says, Now these were the people of Providence who came up out of the captivity and of those exiles who Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of Babylon and carried them captive to Babylon. Um, and they returned to Jerusalem, to, to Judah, each to his own town, right? That's where we got this whole idea of exile from was in that first verse that they were exiles. And what does it look like to be an exile? Um, and then that next section from really chapter, from verse 2 all the way down through uh, like verse 63 just gives a list of those names. But it's really cool what Ezra does in, in verse 64. He says, he, he gives us a summary of what all of those, uh, of what that whole section was. And I really appreciate that uh, so that we can kind of get the quick version of that maybe. Um, but one of the things that you'll notice as we as we look through uh, really 64 all the way through verse 70 here in this chapter is that um, it's going to come become apparent that exiles um, exiles need to to live need each other to make it through right we need each other to make it through it's hard to walk that balance and live that life and so God has given us community and one another like-minded people to do that with, which is one of the ways it helps us to get through. Um, so look at verse at verse 64. It says that the whole assembly gathered together. There was 42,360 beside the male and female servants of those uh, who came out, right? And so there was a group, there was an assembly that came together, a group that came together. And it's important that um, we come Together, you need that in order to make it through. We can't be exiles alone and expect to make it through, right? When when your way of viewing the world and framing of looking at the world is different than everybody around you, and you have nobody in your community, if you have nobody around you, it's not going to take long for you to get burnt out. It's not going to take. We all have needs. We all need those people, and that's why God has put us in community. That's what's the big deal about coming and being a part of a church. It's not about just showing up on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and checking something off the box. But it's about community. It's about being there for one another. It's about encouraging one another as we go throughout. And so it's important. Uh, We see this in the early church, right? That they would constantly gather together. And that was the life force that got them through the persecution and the things that they experienced. But not only do we see here that they they came together um, as as a community, but they also contributed together. Verses 68 through 69, it talks about the offering that they made, the sacrifice they made in order to build this house uh, according to the ability that they have. And there's an idea even here as community that we give together. right? This is not a message on giving or why we should give to the church or that or the other. But let me just say like, if, if you've never trusted God in that way, it can push your faith to a whole new level. Um, there's something about being a community that comes together and, and pulls our, part of our resources together to do kingdom work, to advance the mission that God's called us to. And God can use that in some really incredible ways. And so they came together, they gave together, they contributed together, and they built community together. Verse 70, right? It says that the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants, they lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel lived in their towns. They had community. They built these communities together in which they would live. That's important for us, right? That's why we try to make life groups such a big deal. 
Because we realize that as small as this room is, there's still not the possibility that you're going to get a detailed, intimate conversation with everybody in this room. And so we have smaller groups where you can go and do that. Because as life gets heavy and as it gets hard to be in exile in this world uh, and to live in that balance of, of, of what am I going to submit to, what am I going to stand to for, I need those people in my corner that's going to push me and encourage me and have my back. Okay? So it's important. It's important that we realize that exiles need each other to make it through. But lastly, and I think this was so awesome, God's timing and bringing this whole, the whole thing together to the message. Exiles need to be reminded of the gospel. If we are truly going to live as exiles and get it, we have to be reminded of what Jesus did. And so Ross is going to come up and share um, some, some really awesome insight, I think, from, uh, from the section of the names in this passage uh, as it relates with the gospel. Yeah, so I get all the other verses in Ezra <laughs> to cover. Um, so, yeah, um, exactly what Russell was saying. He kind of hinted at this at the beginning that, uh, you know, all this points to the gospel. You can go ahead and go to the slide here. So what I want us to do just for a, a 30-second uh, chat is to read this verse and then talk with someone next to you about what you think it means. All right? So uh, we'll leave it up here. Uh, go ahead and turn to someone next to you, read it, and then talk about what you think this verse is talking about. Um, so... Some of you pick up this because it's kind of already up there, but the part I wanted to emphasize is that all scripture, and the question is, do we really believe that? Like when we get these lists of names, do we really believe that this is profitable for us to teach us about who God is? Um, And so this is kind of the argument for genealogy. Um, So if you can go to the next one, I want to give you just a warm-up example of why genealogy is important to study. So in Genesis chapter 5, there's a list of names um, of the people uh, at the beginning of the Bible. And usually we skip this, right, because it's not all that interesting. And it doesn't really make sense in the uh, order of what's happening. You have Adam and Eve, you have the fall, you have Cain and Abel, list of names, and then you get back to the story of Noah and so on. What's cool about this is you think about what's setting up. You have the fall. You have, like, this really sad story of the fall of uh, Adam and Eve. And then you have Cain and Abel, the first murder, and just the corruption that's happened, this kind of hopeless ending. What's cool is that all these names means something in Hebrew. And when you put them together, you can go ahead and go to the next one, it's the gospel. Okay, so watch this. Right? So you have Adam means man, Seth means a point, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrow, blessed, uh, Mahalalel means blessed by God, Jared shall come down, Enoch teaching, Methuselah his death shall bring, uh, Lamech despair, and Noah means rest or comfort. Sam, did you guys know that when you named Noah? No. Oh, well, there you go. But you put all that together, right? After the fall, there's hope in Genesis chapter 5, because it all says, Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed of God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. And then we get the story of Noah and God's promise, right? Um, so, like, we just see a list of names, but it's actually pointing to who Jesus is going to be. Okay? Um, so we're going to look at the same thing in Ezra chapter 2, that these names all mean something. But the hard part of that is you have to be willing to look. Or you have to love the book enough to go back and figure out what the message is. What is he talking about here? Why is this here? Figuring out what the names mean or what the stories are they're referencing can show us a lot about who God is. Okay, So that's what we're going to do with this chunk in Ezra 2. And I'm not going to go through all the names, but I'm going to give you the highlights of what this is talking about. The uh, tagline at the end of this, I'm going to give you to begin with, that all of the stories are stories of redemption. 
Okay, each name is not there randomly. It is a story of God saying, uh, these people messed up, yes, but I want them back home. And they get a chance to show me that they love me. Okay? Um, so, if you can't see this slide, um, you can uh, ask Russell for it. If you want to take a picture of it, go for it. I put references in here. We're not going to read all the references, but if you want to actually go back and read the stories that are being talked about, the references are on the slides. Okay? Uh, so, to start off with, the first uh, chunk there, in verse 2, uh, there's people mentioned, Nehemiah and Mordecai. Those are not the same, Nehemiah and Mordecai, uh, from the other stories. So, like, Mordecai shows up in the story of Esther, um, and Nehemiah is later there helping to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Not the same guys, but probably who they're named after, right? Um, and then there's another part in verse 5 where it says the sons of Ar were 775. This is more just a historical detail, but then in the book of Nehemiah, they have the same name, but a different number. And so what they think is that a lot of the people probably died on their way back uh, out of exile. So what's, that's why the number difference. All right, so the rest of these names all point to this idea of redemption. And so you have uh, Jeshua is mentioned in verse 6. That is a reference to uh, the high priest that's going to show up in the book of Haggai. He's there. Um, but also that his grandfather, uh, Sariah, however you say it, was one of the people that was killed by Nebuchadnezzar when he first took over in the exile of Babylon. So he gets a redemption to come back and restore the priesthood and restore the city after his father was killed um, by the Babylonians. In verse 23, uh, there's a mention of Anathoth. Anathoth was a city that was destroyed by the Babylonians uh, when they took over. So they get a chance to rebuild, and they're listed as one of the groups that gets to go back. Uh, there's a mention in verse 28 of Bethel was another city. Uh, it's mentioned a bunch of times in the Old Testament as a place of spiritual significance. It's a place in Genesis... Sorry, can you... Sorry. It's a place where uh, Jacob talks to God. It's one of the resting places of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it is visited by Samuel, who's a prophet. It's also referenced as a school for prophets. So it has this spiritual significance to it. However, what we end up seeing is later in the story of uh, 1 Kings and uh, that it becomes a place of idol worship, that it um, goes against all these things God has set out for this city as a place where his presence is going to be. And they choose different idols there. And so they get a chance of redemption to being one of the first groups to go back and build the temple. Right? Okay, you can go to the next one. Uh, Mention of the sons of Nebo. Nebo is an Assyrian god, and so the fact they are referenced to that, and this is a chance to go back to worshiping the one true God and uh, not being part of their namesake. Jericho is a famous city. It was destroyed uh, with Joshua marching around the walls, uh, but it was later rebuilt by Ahab, one of the kings of Israel, against God saying, like, nobody should live here ever again as a sign of my power. And so they get a chance to, re to uh, see redemption by... Uh, you know, going and rebuilding the temple. Sons of Pasher, uh, that's kind of a funny story, not really, but sort of. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, talks about how Pasher uh, arrests Jeremiah and has him beaten. Uh, and so uh, they get a chance for redemption uh, after being the people that abused the prophet of God. They get to be one of the people that go back to rebuild the temple. Um, Asaph is mentioned. He writes a whole chunk of the Psalms. Uh, so you know, that's important for the worship that's going to go on in the temple mentions the Nethanim, or the temple servants. 
uh, which in later uh, Jewish texts called the Talmud, uh, forbids the marrying of Jews to these people because they are seen as outsiders and not really part of the covenant. So they also get a chance to be the ones to rebuild the temple, to kind of rebuild their name. Uh, in verse 50, it talks about the sons of Munim, which are descendants of the Mayanites, who are people who oppressed Israel. Again, redemption from this negative uh, portrayal of their descendants. And then in verse 61 through 63, it mentions the sons of Barzillai, which is a reference to uh, a family that helped King David when he was fleeing from Absalom. Uh, and it's, a, it's an odd little story in the middle because it says they are gene, their names were not found in the records, and so they were not allowed to be part of the priesthood. Um, and that has to do with their own pride, that they wanted to be associated with this name of person who helped King David and not the name of their uh, you know, Levite uh, brotherhood. Um, and so they are actually not included. And so there's a reference to these people to say, like, they chose pride instead of uh, being of the house of God. Um, there's a, an odd have reference to saying to wait on the Urim and Thummim, which was a thing the priests did. It was like a white or black stone that they would toss and kind of uh, see what God's will was on it. Um, so all of that to say, right, that these are stories of redemption. It's not just a list of names. Each one of these is a story of God's faithfulness to say, yes, they messed up. Their descendants have made mistakes. But now you have a chance to show that you still love me um, and are capable of redemption. Um, so we see that the God of the uh, New Testament, the God that loves redemption and love for his people, is just as present in the Old Testament, even just within the list of names that is given. Yeah. Cool. There you go. Thank you, Ross. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's just so huge to realize that maybe maybe sometimes if you're just reading through that, you're just kind of, you know, like my tendency is to just skip that whole section and think, you know what? Okay, there's a list of names, whatever. Um, but when you back it back up, that every detail behind each story of that name is pointing to this idea of redemption. This picture, the story that is so, that is so true for each one of us in our lives, right? I mean, all of us hopefully have had that moment where we recognize and realize that, you know what, my life is so corrupt and so chaotic and so messed up and twisted, there's absolutely nothing I can do to fix it. And that's why I need a savior that's why i need god to come and to do it for me because i can't do it for myself i can try and we do we try to do different things right uh we're still in january so like we're still probably some of us on these resolutions and we we, we sometimes get this this idea that you know what i just need to fix my life if i can get the right relationship if i can get the right uh you know if i can get the right job if i can go to the right places my life will be all right um but what we realize and what we see throughout the stories in the bible and in our own lives is that they're not they're, they're messed up. They're broken. And that's why we need a Savior to come in and to change and to transform that in our lives. And I just think it's a beautiful picture to see that, that, that idea of redemption even in a list of names, something that we would probably discount on most days. Um, and so as we walk <clears throat> as exiles, as those that realize that this place is not our home, right? I've been saying that over and over and over again, um, so hopefully it's, it's sunk in a little bit, um, that we need each other. Right, We need each other to encourage and to lift one another up. We also need that reminder of the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. The gospel story. Right, That's the fire. That's the fuel to light the passion, the mission that God's given us to, to, to live as exiles and to share his love and his gospel with the world around us.
And so I want to give you guys a uh, last, last little thing um, here. I want us to have a few minutes um, for you guys to discuss one more question together. Um, hopefully this will kind of help to kind of maybe uh, to drive it home a little bit more for you, to, to make it a little bit more permanent for you. But it's this question. Okay? As we think about our lives, what is one way that we can live like the exile, in the way of the exile, or like the wisdom warrior in your life this week? What is one way in your life that uh, maybe God, through something that we've talked about this morning, has said, you know what, this is something, this is an area in your life that you either need to submit or to stand up to. This is an area in your life that some change needs to happen, realizing that this place is not my home. What is one of those areas uh, that maybe you can make some intentional effort toward this week? And I put a bonus question in there because some of you guys might get through with that really quickly. And I said, how would doing this with other people make you more successful at this task? Right? Whatever it is that you want to work on this week, uh, if you could have other people join you in that, how could that make it? And I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave this morning, I kind of wrap up this morning just assuming that maybe everybody here has accepted that, has heard that message, um, that he is the rescuer. Um, I always want us to have opportunity to respond to that. Um, maybe it's an opportunity even this morning that you need to respond to something that God's welled up in your in your heart even through whether it was through a song this morning or whether it was through something in the Word this morning. Um, but you need that time to respond. And I want to make sure that um, that's always a part of what we do together is that we have time and space to do that. And so um, this morning, especially if there's any response that you guys want or need to make, uh, to anything that we've talked about or anything that's happening in your life, um, feel free. I'd love for you to come and, and pray. Um, I would love to come and pray with you. Um, so feel free. I'm going to be standing or kind of standing up here close to the front if you need uh, someone to pray with you or you have questions or things that maybe that we could talk through about any of that. Um, I'm going to be up here. would love to do that with you. Um, or maybe it's just a thing where you need to sit and just do some work with God. Um, just have some internal moments. I know we've had time to talk with other people, uh, but maybe you just need that moment with God to make that commitment this week that, you know what, as I walk into the world that I'm going to go into, that we're going to step out into here in about 10 minutes, um, and we're going to be confronted with a lot of things, um, but I'm going to realize for me that uh, this is what it's going to look like for me to live um, in this place and what, it's gonna, what it should be for me to uh, follow in the steps of Jesus.